Jesus to get bigger, the cross to work better, the resurrection to be central. I want to point out not just the belief nature and the doctrinal nature of the cross and resurrection, but also the eventual nature of it. Like, if, if it doesn't somehow transform our life to where we are fundamentally shifting the way we see everything after it, then what have we done? Uh, and we've, we've done an injustice to it. Now, and all of us know it. You all know what I mean by that. We've all seen somebody who believes in Jesus, but who makes you nauseated when you look at how they treat other people. Um, and so we don't want, we don't want to do that. So in, in this session, in the first session, obviously, it was all about peacemaking and the end of hostility and someone's got to act first and how far do I have to go for you all to get along and it's this kind of stuff. This session, I want to, I want to try something um, a little bit daunting. Um, I, I, uh, I got called out on something um, at the beginning of the year um, by a friend. He was someone uh, who, who was not being hostile toward me all. He wanted to, he, this is a friend of mine that would be committed to making me better. And, uh, and he, he caught me using a throwaway line. And I've told the people closest to me, if you ever catch me using a throwaway line, call me out on it because I want to be better. I want to be better than that. And, and the throwaway line was this. At this place, we live for the glory of God, right? And that shouldn't be a throwaway line, but the way I used it was a throwaway line because he called me, he called me on it and he said, he said, Shane, you said that at this place, we live for the glory of God. And I said, yes, of course we do. And that's not something anybody could disagree with. Nobody could say, no, we need less glory for God. No one, would, no one would say that. But the problem is, is when we run out of language. And so he said, what does that mean? To live for the glory of God. What, 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 does, that, what does that mean? And I went, well, it means as you're living, you're giving God glory. And he went, you know better than that. To use the word you're using to define the word you're using is really, really unintelligent. He said, come on. We live for the glory of God? Really? What does that mean? He said, I challenge you to do your thing. Do that thing you do where you can put language around hard things. I was like, okay. So this is my attempt at that. I want to talk to you tonight about the eventual nature of the cross and resurrection should lead us to living for the glory of God. The question is, what does that mean? This is brand spanking new. Um, and so... All I'm asking is that if this is horrible, peace between us is the most important thing. Um, also, I would ask you in 13 years to consider the whole of my work <laughs> instead of the one plotted point. But I think we're going to find we're going to find something in this. This is Paul. Um, if you could bring that, the, the scripture up there. This is Paul in Philippians chapter 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's a whole thing going on there. Um, the, the word translated cross there was a swear word. Um, you weren't allowed to say it. Um, nobody drew the cross or spoke of the cross until 500 AD, after, 100 years after the practice was abolished for, for horrendousness. Um, this was like, oh, oh, it'd be just, ooh, it's a tough word. Um, and, and, therefore, God has highly exalted him. In, in, other words, in, in other words, sometimes your greatest suffering, even that kind of suffering, even the, the worst kind of suffering, it, that's what leads to your exaltation. They, it, it's, 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 not often our, it's not often our wins that lead to more wins. It's often our failures that can actually be the very thing that exalts us. It's a very good observation about one of the meanings of the cross. Is that therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name. 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, whether that in, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a massive statement by a first century rabbi who understood that the Bible is not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic progressive revelation of what people thought God was that was leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ that was so good that God gave it life by inspiring it. That's what the Bible is. And so what you find in the Bible is that even the names of God moved and shifted and changed. Like the earliest record of what God, God introduced himself to Abraham as El Shaddai. 400 years later, he introduced himself to Moses as Yahweh. And then of course, Yahweh makes no sense because it just means I am what I am, which leads to this question, what are you? And so they started putting words around that, like Yahweh or Jehovah, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Sidkenu, Jehovah Mikadeh. Jehovah Shema, Jehovah Shalom, that the ancient Jewish way of approaching what God was, was this phrase, yes and, yes and. Like, does God exist? Sort of, but not in the way you think existence works. If you're limiting God to your understanding of existence, then you're doing discredit for that. Is God love? Yes, but bigger than what you think love is. Is God mercy? Yes, but whatever you think mercy is, whatever. That's, that's, that hasn't scratched the surface. Yeah, yeah. Is God peace? Yes, but, but not the kind of peace you can get your head around. It's a peace that surpasses. It's yes and. So is God love? Yes. Is he only love? No. Is he mercy? Yes. Is he only mercy? No. no. Is God peace? Yes. Is he only that? No. No. He's Jehovah. Is he a healer? Yes. Is he only a healer? No. Is he your righteousness? Yes. It's, it's Jehovah Shema, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Sidkenu, Jehovah Mikadesh, Jehovah. And, and they just, the more they learned about God, the more they kept shifting his name to encapsulate all of the character, uh, uh, all of the character attributes that they could. And so Paul's making this incredible, profound claim that because Jesus humbled himself to live for the glory of God, that God responded by glorifying him with the name that was above every other name, whether that was in heaven or earth or under the earth. In other words, that in Jesus Christ was the encapsulation of every name of God written before in one person. But then he responded by glorifying God. God exalted him, he glorified God. So in Jesus' death, he brought glory to God. What we also find, if we trace this word glory backwards, we find that Jesus glorified God in his birth. Here's Luke chapter 2. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace amongst all those in whom he is pleased. In, in the translation I memorized, it was peace on earth and goodwill to all men, all. See, this is radical stuff. In, in Jesus' day, they thought God's favor only existed on a few people. But at Jesus' birth, the heavenly host proclaimed that Jesus is bringing glory to God for all people, all people. Now, to understand this, we've got to understand a little bit of history. This is a competing biographical narrative to Caesar. So, so, so there was a narrative to Caesar Augustus that this is absolutely coming against. And, and to understand this, we got to go back to 44 BC. In 44 BC, there was a guy named Julius Caesar who successfully uh, brought the whole world under one rule. Um, he also invented the salad. He was an incredible dude. He, he, 
He dies, he claimed not only to be man, but fully God incarnate. Uh, the Roman historians and poets said that, that in, in Caesar was the fully God, divine nature in, in fleshly form, and no other name on earth by which men can be saved other than the name of Caesar. In 44 BC, if you know your history, you know that Caesar was killed by being stabbed in the back by his best friend, a guy named Brutus. This hurt his God claim. The idea was is that if you were God, you probably should have saw that coming, right? In 42 BC, they end up having this, you know, they, they have this uh, memorial for him, and, and, and it just, this was coincidence, but this, was, this has been con confirmed by astronomers. They've actually named it. They've called it Caesar's Comet. Yeah, there, there was a song, a rock song in the 70s about Caesar's Comet, and evidently what happened was is that Caesar's Comet came so close to Earth that it lit up the day and the night sky. One historian said that it lit up the day and night sky for seven straight days, which was obviously a bit of an exaggeration. They were trying to give it more credence to put towards Caesar. The idea was, though, in a superstitious world, if you're at Julius Caesar's funeral and a strange star appears in the sky and slowly shoots off, might you think that this God-man is now taking his seat amongst the gods, which is what they, which is what they said. So Julius Caesar's great nephew was a guy named Octavius. Octavius saved Julius Caesar when he was behind enemy lines in Gaul. And Julius Caesar, um, uh, he rewarded him by adopting him as his adopted son and made him the heir apparent to the throne. Octavius then took on the name Caesar Augustus. And here was his thought. If my father is God, then I am the son of God. And if I'm the son of God, then I should be worshipped. And since I'm the son of God, I should be worshipped primarily. So, Caesar Augustus instituted a 12-day celebration of his birth. It lasted from December 19th to December 31st every year, and it was called, wait for it, Advent. It was called the Advent of Caesar Augustus. On the first day of Christmas, my true listen to me. So, how do you get word from Spain to India that you are God in flesh? There was no electricity, no printing press, and town criers were highly unreliable. Here's what you did. When you wanted to get a government message to the entirety of the empire, they printed it on money. So, Caesar Augustus had advent coins print up, printed up as legal tender and currency. And he had three major ones. The first one had his image, his face on the front, and it said Caesar Augustus. When you turned it over, it said no other name on earth by which men can be saved. The second one said that he would be a multiplier of bread for all people. The third one said that there would be peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Also, if you go home tonight and Google Caesar Augustus star coin, you will find that he printed a coin that exacerbated the meaning of this strange star. He printed a coin and it had his head on the front and it said Caesar Augustus. And when you turn it over, it had a giant star and it says God saves. God saved. So, so, so remember, there's this one time where they, they're trying to trick Jesus into treason, and they say, what should we do about taxes? And they had like a private investigator over there with a first century uh, uh, recording device, right? And, they, and, he, and Jesus goes, I, 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 who has a coin? I need a coin. And so somebody hands him a coin, and, and he says, whose image is on the coin? And they say, Caesar's. Oh, hang on a second. Second command is, don't carry images of other gods. So if you're carrying around something that has the image of someone who says he's God, are you breaking the second command? Yes. And what does Jesus say? He says, render under Caesar what is 
Caesar's, but keep God's what's God's. In other words, you're trying to trick me, but you're the one breaking the higher command. I would keep Caesar's what's Caesar's, and I would give God what is God's. That is in your face sort of stuff. Remember in Matthew, it says that wise men came from the east, and what do they say? They say to Herod, we're looking for the one, the new king of the Jews, for we have seen his star. In other words, your guy has a star, our guy has a star. And it says, all of Jerusalem heard this and was disturbed by it. Of course they were, because something like this could radically change the current social structure, which was playing into their hands. This is an unbelief. Oh, oh remember, remember in Luke, it says that, that around Jesus's birth, there was a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill to all men. For unto us is born this day in the city of David, a savior, and his name is Christ, and he is Lord. The point of the Christmas story is not simply God becoming man. It's also an in-your-face confrontation that Caesar Augustus doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. So evidently in his birth and in his death, he was bringing glory to God by confronting oppression everywhere he saw it. Which leads me to this question. In the last 30 days, where have we intentionally confronted oppression? What does it mean to live for the glory of God? It means to be intentionally confronting oppression. Anytime you intentionally confront oppression, you're bringing glory to God. I was, I was having coffee today with somebody I consider a good friend. He, he was telling me that, um, that, that, that he was helping some people in Tanzania um, shelter and protect 300 kids uh, from abuse and try to get them educated and change the course of their lives. That, that's bringing glory to, to God. When, 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 you're bringing, uh, when you're bringing medicine to people who didn't currently have it, when you're getting girls out of sex trafficking, when you're feeding, clothing, sheltering, educating um, orphans, when you, when, when you are going into places that, that are under horrendous injustice, it, what does it mean to live for the glory of God? It means that when you wake up in the morning, you're saying yes to the infinite possibilities Jesus has for your life. You're not simply waiting to go to heaven when you die, and you are intentionally confronting oppression everywhere we see it. Why? Because in Jesus' birth, he was confronting oppression. And in Jesus' death, he was confronting oppression. And when he brought glory to God, evidently God responds by exalting him. That's glory. Now, let, let's look at another place. Uh, next slide. In, in Greek, the word is doxa. That's going to come back in a second. I love this quote by Dallas Willard. No relation to me. Dallas Willard is a world-class philosopher. I am a redneck. Um, <laughs> If the familiar becomes too familiar, it becomes unfamiliar. In other words, our throwaway lines can end up hurting our culture. Like, like if we say the Bible's the word of God and, and it just becomes a line, or, or we need to be light in our community, and that just beca- or we need to live for the glory of God. If, that, if those things just become lines and we lose language, if it becomes too familiar, it becomes unfamiliar. Like, like, like if, if it becomes, this is true in anything. You work at the same job 30 years, you take it for granted. It's too familiar, it's unfamiliar. You, you, you married to the same person so long that, that, that their presence is no longer special until it's missing. And then, and then, it's, then it becomes very, like, like, like some people are so special to you that, that if, if you were in a restaurant with 100 people in it, that their absence is actually more present than the other people's presence. So we don't ever want the familiar to become too familiar because if it becomes too familiar, it becomes unfamiliar. 
And so my goal tonight is to refresh this idea of the glory of God, the doxa. We'll come back to that. But doxa finds its root thought in something else. Ne- ne- next slide. So this is uh, yeah, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The word is kavod. Kavod. So, so the Hebrew word, now remember, in, in Hebrew there's 8,000 words, and in, in English is 80,000. So, so they can have broad sort of meanings. The word is weight, heavy, significance. The root is a rich person weighted down by his riches. Um, glory is a sense that you have to catch your breath from the heaviness of it. We, we, we've, we've all experienced something in, in God before where we just had to go, hush, oh, need to breathe and take that. That is something beyond me. And, and, and the psalmist says, here's what glory is. Glory is looking at the sky and realizing that, that whoever put those stars there is that much bigger than you. In other words, it, it, glory, to live for the glory of God is anytime you wake up and you are fully aware of where you stand and where he stands. It's, 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 it's going out, and we know a lot more about this than they did, but it's going out and realizing that one of those stars you see is 130,000 light years away. In other words, what you're seeing actually happened 130,000 years ago, and you're just now seeing it with your eye. <laughs> whoa. Like, whoo, think about that one for a second. Next one, let's, let's say it this way. Kavod is when you look at the stars and realize how small we are. The, the opposite would be thinking of yourself as larger than we are. So, so if, we, if, we, if we put too much weight on ourselves, uh, Kavod cannot be viewed in its full by men. The best we could do, it's kavod, not caved. Sorry, that, that, there was autocorrect there somewhere. The best we could do with kavod is to see where it has been. You can't see the full glory of God. Let, let, let's see it this way. Next slide. We only know part of kavod by reminding ourselves how small we are. Let, let me say it this way. Kavod, to live for the glory of God, is anytime we're intentionally confronting oppression. To live for the glory of God is any time that we embrace all without having to figure it all out. To live for the glory of God is realizing there's some things we'll never figure out. How is it that you could get your head around the fact that some of those stars that we'll see in our sky tonight, what you're seeing is 130,000 years old and you're just now seeing it. It's 130,000 light years away. Get your head around that. And, and there's a way you can live the rest of your life saying, I'm not going to be in awe of God until I can figure that out. Or living for the glory of God is realizing he's big, we're small, and we're going to embrace all instead of certainty. That's anytime we embrace the opportunity to be in awe of what God's doing instead of having to figure it out, that's living for the glory of God. Like, would you rather see somebody healed or would you rather understand how healing works? I would just rather see them healed. If God lets me understand how it works, bonus. But I'll, I'll take being in awe of somebody being delivered, set free, healed. I, I, would you rather be captured in awe in a worship experience, or would you rather understand how the notes brought you there? That, like, I, I would rather just be captured. If God lets me understand it, bonus. But living for the glory of God is anytime we embrace all at the expense of certainty. That, that's living for the glory. So living for the glory of God is, is, is anytime we intentionally confront oppression. It's anytime we embrace all at the, at the expense of certainty. Let, let's say it this way. Ne- next slide. We tend to worship at the altar of the fad, but we long to worship at the altar of the fixed. 
Something that comes and goes has no kavod. But things with kavod are fixed and here to stay. In other words, you go out and look at the, the stars, fixed. Stars don't come, stars, fixed. Which leads me to this question. Is there anything that we've put weight into that comes and goes? Money can come and it can go. Status can come and go. Their approval can come and go. Your ranking can come and go. That promotion can come and go. The fact that your husband's happy with you today, that can come and go. The fact your wife is happy with you today, that can come, that can go. Your children walking on the straight and narrow can come, but it can also go. And if we put too much weight in temporary things, we're putting our attention on things with no kavod. Something that comes and goes has no kavod. Things, with, things that are fixed have kavod. Which, which leads me to this. It's, it, it's the lie of the sacred object. That one of the ways to frame the gospel is the forgiveness of sins. One way is the freedom from slavery. One way is the end of hostility. One way is the opportunity to live for the glory of God. One way to frame the gospel is freedom from the sacred object. The, the sacred object is, is anything, any lie that says, if I just get that thing, I'll be like God and have peace. And so this is very early on. First sacred object was what? The forbidden fruit. Like, have you ever stopped to thought how boring of a story that is? It's a pretty boring story. Like, they're in a garden full of fruit, and there's a piece of fruit. That's boring. What is even interesting about this piece of fruit? Like, you're in a garden full of fruit, and then there's something interesting about this one piece of fruit. What's the only thing that makes it interesting? The fact that it was forbidden. You forbid something and you create an obsessive need for it. If you're a parent, you get this. Like, like your four-year-old might not have touched that toy in six months until you tell them they can't play with it. And now it's that, forbid that forbiddance creates this incredible obsessive need for it. And, and the lie of the serpent was, there's an object out here that if you just had that, you'll be more whole, more like God, more at peace, more fulfilled if you just had that object. So they eat it, and it was a disaster. It, it promised everything and delivered nothing. Now, you would think they would learn, but they didn't. Then they created another sacred object called the law. The idea, if you keep all these rules, you'll be like God and have peace and wholeness. That was a lie, too. Paul makes that observation. He says, the law accomplished nothing except for to make us aware of where we didn't keep it. Like if you make 100 decisions in a week and 99 are good and one's bad, you're gonna go to bed thinking about the bad one. It didn't do what it was supposed to do. But then they didn't learn and they created another one called the Holy of Holies. They said, oh, God lives in there. But we forbid you going in there. Great psychology. How do you get people to seek the presence of God? You forbid them from it. Brilliant. You just, that, that's all you have to do. That, that's why it, later on the opposite side, Paul's life transformation strategy was what? All things are permissible. In other words, if we forbid nothing, it'll actually free people to choose to do that which is profitable. But as long as we're forbidding things, we're going to create an obsessive desire for people to do the things we're forbidding, right? right? So, so they create the Holy of Holies. And they say, God lives in there. But we forbid you. We're going to put this big curtain God lives in there. Can't go in there. 
Well, what will happen if we go in there? You'll die. Of course, does that ever happen? No. Nebuchadnezzar in 2 Kings 25 goes, it says he walked into the Holy of Holies, stole the furniture and didn't die. There was an Assyrian king who ransacked the place. He didn't die. In 63 BC, Pompey Magnus came into Jerusalem and said, what is y'all's problem? They said, our God lives in there. He said, I'm gonna have a talk with him then. They said, you can't. He said, why? They said, you'll die. He said, if I walk in there, I'll die. Who will kill me? They said, our God will kill you. He said, I tell you what, I'm gonna walk in there because I'm Pompey Magnus. I'm gonna walk in there. And if I die, write this down. If I die, all of Rome will convert to Judaism. But if I don't, you're going to be confronted with a problem. And he walked in there. And in Tacitus' book of the histories, volume 5, Pompey Magnus said he found the Holy of Holies untenanted, uninhabited, and completely unimpressive. He walked in there, and he didn't die. Jesus dies on the cross. What's the first thing the gospel writers say? And the temple veil tore what was, the, what was the first message the gospel writers wanted you to get? Where you thought the presence of God was, it wasn't there all along. The presence of God is coming to all of us, and we will be the temple of the living God. Ooh. It's the lie of the sacred object. It's, it's the lie that something temporary will give you wholeness. Jesus did not die to give us wholeness. Jesus died to obliterate the need for wholeness. Jesus died to obliterate the need to find that sacred object to give us something. Jesus is like, I am enough. No, 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 no. What are you doing? What are you doing? The sacred, here's the gospel. The gospel, in one sense, is the repentance of the need for something out there to give me wholeness. It's all, like how much money is actually enough? I don't know if you saw the new movie, The Richest Guy on Earth. And his grandson was kidnapped and, they, and he wouldn't pay the ransom. He said, I'm not getting poor for his sake. And they said, you're a billionaire. How much is enough? He said, I don't know yet. The, the idea, he said, I haven't reached that number yet. The, 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 the idea that there's enough to make me feel better. No, no. And, and look, I want you to be successful. I do. But if you're not enough without it, you're never going to be enough with it. It doesn't change much. It, or, or, or if I just lost that weight, or, 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 or if I got that promotion, or if I just met that person, or, 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 or. This is the, this is the sacred object. This, is, this leads me to an observation about desire. Desire comes, desire, for desire to be meaningful, it has to have two elements to it. And if you remove any, if you remove either of the elements, you, you got meaninglessness. One is object desire. Object desire is that which I desire. The other is object cause. Object cause is that which stands in your way. So, so, so let, let, just a, a very innocuous example. When you're three, you want to eat all the chocolate. That's your object desire. Your mother is the object cause. You cannot eat all the chocolate, right? So object desire and object cause. And the only thing that gives object desire any meaning is that there's a process and a little bit of a struggle to get what you want. And if you remove the object cause, your life would be meaningless and boring. Any Christianity that says, come to Jesus and there'll be no more struggle. Come to Jesus and you'll get everything you want all the time. Come to Jesus and you'll never be confused about meaning. That just treats Jesus as another sacred object that's going to disappoint. That's not what Jesus is. This is how Christians have stuffed heaven up. Christians say, heaven's, heaven's a place you get to go where you get everything you want all the time. Does that sound compelling at all? 
Like even the Twilight Zone figured this out. In 1938, there was an episode of The Twilight Zone about a wicked man named Robert Valentine. He was a gangster, horrible man, dies in an accident, wakes up in the afterlife, and he doesn't know he's dead because it looks the same. And in the afterlife, there's an angel there named Pip, and Pip's job is to show him around the afterlife. And of course, he doesn't know he's dead, so his first inclination is to rob Pip, right? So he grabs a weapon to rob Pip. Pip rolls his eyes, does that, the weapon falls. He says, shut up, Robert, get in the car. So they get in the car and he takes him to, he, he, he says, you're in the afterlife. And he takes him to his, he says, I'm gonna take you to your house. He takes him to this mansion, you know. And Robert Valentine says, is that your house, Pip? And Pip says, no, it's your house. Oh, and by the way, in that drawer is $3 million, which in 1938, you may as well have been saying a bajillion. And he says, what do you like to do, Robert? Robert says, I like to gamble. He says, good, let's go to the casino. So they go to Atlantic City. And Robert Valentine takes his $3 million and plays a game and wins. He plays the next game, and wins. 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 And he's like, this is awesome. I can't lose. The show then fast forward six weeks later, and Robert Valentine is losing his mind because he's getting everything with no process. He's so bored. He's losing his mind. And he says to Pip, he says, Pip, stop this. Make this go away. And let me remind you, I was a wicked man on the earth. What did I do to deserve heaven? And Pip says, heaven? Who told you this was heaven? This is hell. And it goes blank and it says, so Robert Valentine was condemned by God to an eternity of getting everything he always wanted. So, so true. So true. Like, what, what's more fun, signing for a house or shopping for one? What's more fun, shopping for a car or signing for one? What's more fun, getting to know your spouse or getting to the end of the process of getting to know your spouse? Like, all of life is found in the process. This is the, this is the book of Ecclesiastes in one sentence. Successful people successfully navigate the tension between depression and melancholy. Depression is wanting something you don't have. Melancholy is getting what you think you wanted and you realized it didn't do what you thought it would do. <laughs> that's it. And, and that's what makes Christianity... Somebody, uh, uh, this was just a couple nights ago in a Q&A. An atheist was there and he kindly said, can you, without the Bible, can you tell me what makes Christianity a better worldview than others? No Bible, no atonement, no... I want to know the way you look at life what makes it better than the way other people look at life? What a great question. So I thought, I couldn't use the Bible. I said, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so you have object desire, which is what you want. You have object cause, which is the thing that stands in the way of what you want. And we all know that all the true life is in the process because as soon as you get the object desire, you start looking for the next object desire, which creates another object cause. That's, that's the way it works. I said, so in Christianity, just like most worldviews in the world, they say that our object desire is the presence of God. So what we want is actually the fullness of the presence of God. But the object cause is Jesus. Jesus says, you can't get to God except through me. But then Christianity turns it on its head and says that Jesus is God. So Christianity is the only worldview in the world that says your object cause and your object desire are actually wrapped up in the same person, which creates an eternity of meaningful exploration. No other worldview does that. 
right? 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 Bazinga, right? So, so this is, this is, so what's the glory of God? Then? The glory of God is intentionally confronting oppression. It is, it is that time where we realize that he's there and we are here, that he is big and we're, it's his position and ours. The, 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 the living for the glory of God is anytime we put our value in fixed things, not fad things, in things that, that don't come and go. Um, living for the glory of God is anytime we repent of our need of the sacred object, we admit that the sacred object doesn't have weight. It's that. Let, let, let's say it this way. Next slide. And, and th- this is uh, Ezekiel, uh, sorry, Exodus 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses, this very thing that you've spoken, I'll do. For, I fa- for you found favor in my sight and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory, Kavod. I want to see your weight. I, I want to see that. And he said, I'll make my goodness pass before you. In other words, you don't even know what you're asking. You can't see my glory. You can only see my goodness. Like, are you kidding me? You think you can handle my glory? Please, right? I'll make my goodness pass before you. And and I'm only gonna do that because I like you. And and I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to me, gracious and show mercy. Next slide. But, but he said, you cannot see my face for man cannot see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand by the rock. And, and, and while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you so you don't see it until I've passed by. Then I'll take away my hand and you shall see my back. Now, without getting into this, because I'm, I'm, I'll run short on time, is in short, the way the rabbis teach this is that Moses couldn't see the glory of God. The only thing he could see of the glory of God is the goodness of where God had been. He let him see where he had been. He let him see the backside of light. The backside of light would be the past. He let, so, so what's the glory of God? The glory of God is anytime we intentionally confront oppression. It's anytime we realize he is big and we are small. It's, it's anytime we give credence to. It's anytime we embrace all at the expense of certainty. That's the glory of God. The, the glory of God is anytime we put our value in fixed things instead of fad things and things that are fixed instead of things that are temporary. It, it, living for the glory of God is anytime we repent of our need for the sacred object, that something out there can make me whole. That's not true. It never will be true. It, it, living for the glory of God is anytime we intentionally testify to his goodness. We intentionally testify to the goodness. What, what has God been up to? Well, like if I was to go around tonight and say, tell me what you saw this week. What was God up to this week? And we testify to the goodness of God. That, that's living for the glory of God. Next slide. This is from Chronicles. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory, kavod, and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory, do his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Yes, let the world, is, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Once again, fixed. It's fixed. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. And let them say amongst the nation, the Lord reigns. The, the Lord reigns. So, this, so, so once again, it's, the, it's ascribing, it's a testimony to the goodness of God. That's the glory of God. Ne- next slide. This is Psalms. So what did God do with his kavod? What did he do with it? God has glory. What did he do? Yet you have made him, talking about man, a little lower than the heavenly beings. I don't want to get into this too deep, but the word heavenly beings there is Elohim. It literally says God made you a little lower than himself. No, they say heaven, but it's Elohim. It's God, right? And he crowned him with glory and honor. And he gave, he gave him dominion over the works of his hands and put all things under his feet. So what did God do with his kavod? Evidently, he gave it to us. He gave it away. What does God do with the glory? He gives it away. So when you ascribe glory to him by, by um, 
by giving testimony to his goodness, by intentionally confronting oppression, by keeping your mind around your place, by embracing all instead of certainty. When you, when you, when you repent of the temporary and, and, and worship at the altar of the fixed, when we repent of our need for the sacred object, when we give testimony to the goodness of God, evidently God gives his glory away. And so when we glorify God, he's right there ready to give it back. It's a divine dance. It's a giving and receiving it's, it's a, to, to be any functional part of this world, you have to master the art of giving and receiving, both. You have to know when to step up, when to step back, when to honor, when to submit, when to take your turn, when to, this, this is what's going on here. Let, let's say it another way. Next slide. So this is uh, Jeremiah chapter two. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? That's a great question. In other words, if you grew up in a country that we're taught, you're taught from a child that this is God. Even when you're confronted with the obvious fact that it has no power, it's very hard to shift your gods. Very difficult. Very, very, very difficult. But my people have changed their glory. It doesn't say they changed their gods. It says they changed their, I gave them glory and they changed it. But my people have changed their kavod for wet, that which does not profit. Now watch his response to this. Be appalled, oh heavens, at this. Be shocked. These are... These are huge words, appalling, shocking, utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Next slide. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and this is the key, and they hoot out cisterns for themselves, but they were broken and could hold no water. Once again, it's the sacred object. It's, I am going to give back the glory God gave to me, all instead of certainty, and and I'm going to put my value in Money, fame, prestige, power, relationship, position, promotion, cars, boats, sea-dews, their sisters, shirts, um, housing, uh, uh, status in my community, um, uh, um, the fact whether they approve or not. I'm gonna, I am going to put my value in something that at the end of the day cannot hold water. God's saying, I gave you glory and you've traded it in for the sacred object? What? are you doing? You don't realize that the more water you put in that thing, the faster it's draining out. This is a never-ending cycle of meaninglessness, which was Ecclesiastes' point. So what's the glory of God? When we say we live for the glory of God, what are we saying? We're saying we intentionally confront oppression around here. This, this place lives to confront oppression wherever we see it. Absolutely. Absolutely. When we say we live for the glory of God, what we mean by that is is, is we mean we're willing to be in all without having it all figured out. Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's that's a big one. Oh, yeah. You you know, it it, it means that we have chosen to worship at the altar of the fixed instead of the fed, that we're going to put our value in something that doesn't move instead of something that comes and goes. We're going to repent of our broken cisterns. We're going to repent of the sacred object. We we are going to admit that the gospel is that there is no outside object that's going to make me whole. We're going to repent of that. You know what we're going to do? We're going to intentionally testify to the goodness of God even if we don't don't understand it. So so when we, when myself or, or, or one of the preachers here or pastor, Pastor Mike or Pastor Dave, when, when we say we're for the glory of God here, that's, that's what we mean. That, 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 that's, that's how you trace that through. Next slide. So in Luke, it's God's doxa. In Greek, this word can mean how we think about something. So God's, the idea is God's doxa doesn't change, but our thinking does. So can we align ourselves back under God's doxa? Like, like the way we treat people might depend on how they treat us, but God just always acts loving. That's the glory of God. 
The glory of God is not being doctrinally correct. The, the, the glory of God is people living in a certain way with each other. That's the glory of God. Let, let, let's say it this way. Next slide. Glory to God in the highest is attained by humans embracing and living out of his unchanging essence. So how have we treated the less fortunate? How have we ascribed glory to God? The idea is we have been crowned with kavod. What are we going to do about it? Living life is not about waiting to go to heaven when you die. Or we believe all the right things, glory to God. What? That's not what you see in scriptures. What you see in scriptures is, is bringing glory to God is intentionally confronting oppression. It, it is in embracing all instead of certainty. It, it, it's, in, it's in admitting that the need for the sacred object has been obliterated. It, it's, it's, in, it's, in, it's in intentionally uh, proclaiming the goodness of God. It, it's, it's, in, it's, in, it's in not putting our value in broken cisterns that, that leak water at the bottom. Um, this is a new teaching. So is there another slide after this? Oh, yeah. Have we lost perspective on his place and ours? Or how big and how small? Where have we embraced the gifted kavod? Where have we said yes? Okay, God, you're offering me your glory. I'll say yes only to give it back. And this is how I'm going to give it back. I'm going to intentionally confront oppression. I'm going to repent of the sacred object. I'm going to give testimony to your goodness. I'm going to embrace all instead of certainty. Um, How are we using it? What are we doing with it? Where are we using it? For, you know, for, for me, it's China, it's Cape Town. For you, it might be Tanzania, or it might be, uh, it, it might be China with Doug, or, 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 or in Pakistan with uh, Pastor uh, Anwar, or, 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 or it, could be, it could be our story that we tell, testifying to the goodness of God, or it could be our willingness to embrace all instead of sitting there wondering, I wonder how all that works. Like, it, 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 could, be, it could be a true litmus test of our life. We look and we go, you know what? I have embraced the sacred object. That's, that's not good. Uh-uh. Is, is there another slide? Um, will we reclaim the kavod that we were originally crowned with? Um, that's what repentance is, is to return to the original kavod, that there's a better way to live. Um, where have we placed passion in the temporary instead of the fixed? Um, where have we chased the sacred object and found it empty? Can, can, can we at least admit that we've chased things and it didn't do what we thought it would do? Gee, I thought marriage would make me happy. It didn't. Gee, I thought that promotion would make me feel like success. It didn't. It came and it went. It's, it's that. Is, is there another slide? Okay. So I flew through that, I know. Um, that was my best effort in putting language around what we mean when we say we live for the glory of God. And I hope that really blessed you, inspired you, and challenged us that may we not live for our own glory, but for the glory of God. What does that mean? It means we intentionally confront oppression. We embrace all instead of certainty. We, 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 we repent for the need of the sacred object. We, 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 we testify to the goodness of God. We don't put our value in things that don't hold water. Um, it's these it's these things. So, my brothers and sisters, may the cross and resurrection not just simply be something we believe in, but may it be an eventual thing that fundamentally changes the way we see all other events after that. May we be people who are peacemakers, sons of God. May we not just say, well, we're children of God here. Really? How would anybody know that? What was your basic disposition in hostility? May we be peacemakers. May we turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. May we give our tunic and our cloak. May we be ear healers instead of ear 
cutters. May we be people who intentionally confront oppression. May we embrace all instead of certainty. May we be testimonies to the goodness of God and what God is up to in this world. May we worship at the altar of the fixed instead of the fad. May we put our value in things that hold water instead of things that leak. May we repent of our need for the sacred object. May we live for that glory. Until I see you tomorrow morning, grace and peace, everybody. God bless.